Hello. Before you hear from Rob and Stan, I'd just like you to know that Reimagining Cyber is now 100 episodes old. The show is now a regular in the Apple charts and is one of the most respected podcasts in the cybersecurity world. Now, Rob and Stan and our great guests can, of course, take much of the credit for this, but on behalf of them, I'd like to thank you for regularly downloading and sharing the podcast and giving us valuable feedback, all of which helps us make the show better and better. And if you're feeling generous and want to give us a present for such a landmark achievement, I suggest that you leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Now on with the show. For zero trust, I mean, there there are so many different aspects to it, and I don't think there's one thing like you could point to and say, that's zero trust, right? But the real key foundation there is identity. You have to have a good strategy on how are you going to identify the people that are authenticating into your applications and accessing your data, because everything else is really kind of built upon that. And identity kind of goes into a lot of different aspects on its own right. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategist, I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us today? Rob, our guest today is Nick Ward. Nick is the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Department of Justice and has focused on cybersecurity for over 20 years. Now, Nick has recently been recognized as the Cybersecurity Leader of the Year in the U.S. federal government and support of securing and educating his remote workforce. Uh, congratulations, Nick, on this recognition. And can you expand on your background for our listeners? Hey, Stan. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me today. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I actually started out my cyber career back um, in 1997 when I joined the Marine Corps. And I spent about eight years in the Marine Corps uh, way back before we even called cyber cyber. Um, since then, though, I've got out of the Marine Corps and most of my career, I probably I've been really focused on providing services or uh, serving the federal government in, in a few different capacities. But I've also had some stints where I've worked for companies like ArcSight providing or building security operations centers for federal customers and um, managing SOCs, uh, both in and out of the federal government, uh, places like uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Uh, most recently, I was the CISO for a, a, a global automotive manufacturing a tier one supplier. They made car seats for uh, all the big automotive companies. And and now I'm the CISO for DOJ and uh, enjoying my time in the federal government. We want to first off talk about President Biden's executive order on cyber and, you know, the intent of trying to um, raise the bar as to, you know, our cyber capabilities. Some have have called the, the solar wind attack and, and the colonial pipeline attacks as the main catalyst that brought this to fruition. Do you, do you agree with that? You know, I'm not going to presume to... Uh, be in the minds of whoever authored different part portions of the executive order. Uh, but it was certainly a major driver for everybody working on that. Um, I think um, if you read through some of the language, there's probably some influence of the colonial pipeline 
uh, incident as well, and that uh, that likely went into the EO. Uh, but as you can tell, the EO is pretty focused on how does the federal government defend itself against our foreign adversaries. And so for that reason, I think SolarWinds was probably uh, the, the major driver behind that. Nick, if we kind of break down the several different components or areas that the executive order covered, right? There's there's threat until sharing, there's modernization, you know, securing cloud and zero trust type of architecture models, uh, securing the software supply chain, which again, when you look at SolarWinds, that was a major indicator there. Uh, improving detection response. So there's a lot going on, right? Yeah. But if we drill specifically into one of the areas to kind of start the conversation, um, modernization. And think about it in the regards of, you know, zero trust architecture models. What do you view as kind of the key success factors or key elements to implement a zero trust architecture? Especially when you think about, you know, the world that you live in, which is so many different agencies underneath the umbrella of DOJ. It's pretty much monumental task to try to kind of bring it all together. But what's your viewpoint on that model and zero trust in, in general? Well, so first of all, I'm, I mean, I think zero trust sometimes gets a bad name in, in, in the cybersecurity world because we, we often are a bit jaded from the vendor community in terms of, um, you know, somebody trying to bring some new marketing term. And I, I think that's, that's a mistake for people sitting in, in seats like mine where um, we can use that to help really drive change within our organizations because it's it's an easy term that we can use to talk about cybersecurity strategies with our executive leadership. And so so that's my first thought on it is, is we need to capitalize on all the work that industry is doing to, to really to help us brand cybersecurity in a way that is relatable to our our, our absolutely top executives in our organization. So that's my first thought on it. Um, and then for zero trust, I mean, there, there are so many different aspects to it. And I don't think there's one thing like you could point to and say that's zero trust, right? But um, the real key foundation there is identity. You have to you have to have a good strategy on how are you going to identify the people that are authenticating into your applications and accessing your data because everything else is really kind of built up upon that. And an identity kind of goes into a lot of different aspects on its own right. Um, making sure that we know um, who the people are, you know, you may want to, for your most critical sets, um, you need to be able to have a more dynamic look at that identity. So um, you might be okay with lower levels of credentials like uh, softer credentials that are more username and password based for very unsensitive data sets or even public data sets. But for those really critical things, um, I think zero trust is the idea that we have, we're looking at the stuff dynamically based on the risk of the data that they're accessing. So I may want to know about the security posture, the device that they're coming from, um, where they're connecting from. Um, how did we, vet the identity of this person. So that's probably one that gets overlooked a lot is, um, you know, we, we have a good credential, we're doing MFA in all the right ways. But do you even know that the person actually is who they said they were? Did, did the agency that you're trusting sponsor them in a way that 
um, you 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 have a high level of confidence that they actually are Nick Ward or you know uh, or whoever else. So I am identity and access management. I think are, is is really the key foundation of zero trust, and then you have to start building around that. And uh, for us, that means we're building out um, we you know we're building out the identity first, making sure that we have a good idea of what that is. We're using uh, commercial services to, to help us build that. And then we're gonna, I wanna micro segment all of our applications. So I'm making those dynamic decisions on a, on a very, I would love to do it down to the database or the, the actual data level. Um, that's gonna be very dependent on the application. Um, but I, I also think it's important to be successful in this area. We can't let perfection uh, prevent us from making progress in this area. We've got to be looking at what are the foundational capabilities, build that, and start bringing on your applications. If you've got legacy applications, get it brought in. Um, don't wait five or 10 years until you modernize the application. Bring it in now. Isolate the thing, put a proxy in front of it, whatever you got to do to start leveraging the benefits of Zero Trust architectures today. The executive order seems to address a lot of issues associated with third parties and supply chain risks. Um, do you see the steps being taken going to be uh, adequate as far as helping us gain trust in that those relationships, either be the, the third parties that you deal with um, or the, the software supply chain that you're dependent on? Supply chain risk management and, you know, doing third party risk assessments, I think it's a a, a, probably one of the toughest problems that we face. Um, there's thousands and thousands of vendors out there, and I think it's um, we're we're fooling ourselves if we think we can manage the security of every vendor that we we collaborate with. But so the things that we are doing is you know looking at what are our most critical vendors, the ones that can hurt us the most. Um, and making sure, trying to bring up the whole industry, like getting better standards out there, trying to use our, our ability to, you know, our, our dollars, like how much money we spend to help drive um, change in, in that regard. So, you know, you, you can't buy from certain types of vendors unless you've done, you know, these kinds of uh, certifications and things like that. Trying to raise the bar for the whole industry as a whole government, as a whole industry, we do have to put pressure on ourselves to be introspective and, and really raise our cybersecurity bars internally, which will in turn reap benefits across, um, you know, both from the customer side and from the uh, uh, supplier side. So Nick, you mentioned standards, you know, one of the, the requirements out of the executive orders for, for NIST with others uh, supporting them to define what critical software means. And that should help you prioritize what you need to focus on. They've also rolled out some preliminary guidance uh, that they call fundamental um, around the, the kind of uh, measures you need to put in place. How, how are you going to move forward uh, given that this is now on the table um, as far as identifying critical software, taking action, based on the recommendations they've rolled out. NIST gives us the tool, is giving us another tool for us to be able to figure out how to apply supply chain risk management. And it's, it's gonna, it helps us focus on those situations where 
a foreign nation state may target U.S. trusted high quality companies and, and because they have that trust with us. And it helps us realize and focus and prioritize looking at the same kinds of criteria for those vendors. And then we, we certainly have to modernize our supply chain risk management programs to how do we evaluate a trusted company? And, it, and a lot of that's going to focus on what are the right mitigations? Like this is a critical vendor. How do we build our security architectures in the context that that trusted vendor could be compromised by an adversary and used to target me. Um, and that's probably the biggest change that we're looking at is um, supply chain risk management won't be, uh, should we use this vendor or not, but how do we integrate them into our architecture in a safe way? Within the executive order, kind of maybe a little bit buried within it, was the whole concept of SBOMs, right? Software builds of material, um, which is picking up some good momentum. Now, there's a flip side kind of risk associated to it, which is as we kind of put the recipe out there that says exactly the ingredients associated to the deliverable of that software, the adversary gets their hands on it as well, right? So they really understand exactly what's within there. So there's some concerns and kind of on that side of the equation. When you look at the movement and kind of positive progression that SBOMs are, are starting to, to pick up on here, What's the take within government? Are you seeing that become much more of a formal, yes, we're gonna go forward with this? And is it gaining positive traction in your regard as well? Just my personal take on it would be looking at things from the perspective of attackers aren't limited by laws. They're not limited on ethics or anything like that. And they are, they're figuring out, you know, which vendors are using which backend libraries. They, I mean, they, they can find that out in, in various ways. and. Um, by keeping that secret doesn't necessarily protect us because if, if I don't know as a customer that a particular library is part of, or a software package or whatever is part of a product that I'm buying and we find out that it's targeted, you know, some vendors will be good about that and tell me about it. And some probably won't. I'm an advocate of information sharing and, and this would be an aspect of that. You could probably come up with ways to do that securely, I suppose, but initially it probably is a risk to do it uh, right out the gate. But over time, vendors will have to adapt to that. They'll have to realize that, um, and they should already realize that the backend softwares that that are being used, I mean, you can see like a particular library has, you know, however millions of downloads. So it's probably highly prevalent in commercial software being provided. So it's, it's hard to believe that adversaries are not already targeting those types of packages now. And so what do we do? I, I, I think this is an area where highlighting those things and making sure that, um, that as a community that we're getting more eyes in those kinds of packages that do have high risk. Like who's, who's vetting the software, who's vetting backdoors in those kinds of libraries? I don't, you there's nobody's responsible for it per se. So I, I'm an advocate, I suppose, of more information is better. Hey, Nick, I'd like to transition to another area, one that you know quite well is around security operations and how we can improve the detection and response to these bad actors. We need to obviously reduce that dwell time and the, the amount of 
volume of, of, of data we have to go through and the velocity of the data um, is, is difficult to cope with. Um, and you've helped build security operations centers to help organizations um, be successful, more successful in detecting these bad actors. What role do you see machine learning and artificial intelligence playing going forward? I mean, I personally think that we need to sort of fuse the two, the human element and human intelligence and the machine intelligence to deal with this. But in the government space, is that something that you're seeing happen as well? For most, I would say 99% of security operation centers out there, they're, they're probably not building their own ML libraries or AI libraries, right? They're not they're depending on industry products that incorporate those capabilities. And, um, and, and so that's, I, it absolutely is having an impact, right? It's, it's speeding up detection. Um, hopefully if they're doing that faster than our adversaries are. Um, but most organizations in the federal government or in commercial, they, they, they're not likely um, staffed and resourced to the level where they're bringing on their own AI developers and, and developing their own analytics. We're depending on the, the fact that there's lots of customers buying these commercial products and these vendors hopefully are um, adopting those types of capabilities. Nick, I want to go back to one of the things that you were alluding to a bit and, and you're an advocate of, as am I, and have been for a long time. It's, it's all about uh, really, again, collaboration and in regards to threat intel sharing, which again is one of the key elements called out within the executive order. You know, we, we were speaking with Michael Eccles, who you know, um, on an episode or two ago, and he's a major proponent. He's seen though the barriers kind of between private and public sector in regards to sharing of, uh, of intel, where there's kind of a feeling at times where, um, you know, public sector is asking for more than they're willing to share and the private sector on the other way around is kind of doing a bit of the same. So, you know, what's your viewpoint? Is, are there some kind of key areas that we can break down these barriers and just do a much better job overall at threat intel sharing? I think there are some clear barriers. I mean, you know, government has a special um, mission in terms of like, there's fears of things like, if I share this information with the government, am I going to be prosecuted as a result or could I get sued? And we have things like FOIA that um, if you want to share information with us, can we protect that from being disclosed through a FOIA request? And those are some of the challenges that I think, um, and, and I'm not going to speak for industry, uh, they, they probably have other concerns also. Uh, I, I do. Fortunately, I think there are people thinking about those problems and trying to come up with ways to um, solve them. Uh, it's a hard problem though. And, and a lot of it has to come down to trust and can we trust each other to share the information? Uh, I think there's a strong desire on both sides to do so. Um, that, I mean, our adversary, like they're getting better and better and they're not, <laughs> they're not shy about sharing information. They're selling malware, botnets, access to my systems and everything else. Yeah. And, uh, they'll share it, sell it, however they can commoditize it. And we need to be doing the same thing. Hey, Nick, one of the things that we've had on this podcast is around cyber resilience. And would love to get your view on this because certainly some of the things we've talked about, like zero trust, can lead to um, better resilience to be able to withstand attack. 
Um, we, we obviously need to do a lot more to be able to, you know, detect and, and respond quickly to be able to um, continue to, to operate um, in, in the face of these uh, waves of attacks we're seeing. Uh, there's certainly things like security hygiene, the basics that are critical to get done. Um, what are you seeing as uh, a, a trend as far as in, in DOJ and other places in the government as far as building in that resilience is the executive order part of that um, as far as helping folks raise that bar and enabling them to continue to operate? Yeah, I mean, so we had started this journey, pro I mean, years ago in re reality. I mean, we looked at threat cons and things like that and tried to learn how to apply those to cyber systems. Um, and it, it's a tough problem. It's trying to figure out what are you willing to live without uh, when, a, when an attack is ongoing. But unfortunately, a lot of those attacks, you don't know about it until it's already impacting you. Um, and um, so that, that's part of the problem, I think, with some of those kinds of programs. So I, I think where you're, you're headed is, is, is the right direction. Like I think some of the, the zero trust architecture kind of stuff is really taking that into account. How do, we seg how do we naturally segment our applications and our services in a way that doesn't impact how we do business? So when we like our high value asset program was actually designed for that very specific purpose. Like what are the most valuable data sets from the perspective of a, a threat adversary? And do we have the right security measures around that? As we look at our zero trust architectures, we can create that segmentation. So if, if one system is compromised at the very least, it's not bleeding over to another system. And we are looking at even out-of-band communications and things like that on um, how would we respond to an attack if our email system is compromised, for instance. Um, but it does take looking at systems from the perspective of, you know, we, we think of like, yeah, email is important, but it's just email. Well, try shutting it down and see what happens. So right, right. Like you've got to run through those kinds of scenarios and actually see how it impacts your missions. You recently received the Cybersecurity Leader of the Year Award. I want to take an opportunity for you to share and expand a lot more in regards to the raising awareness around security threats that you were able to put into the program within DOJ. Phishing, obviously, was a key element of that, but it was all in that transition over the past you know, year plus now in regards to teleworking. And, and that's a major area of you know change that took place within DOJ. But talk a little bit more about what kind of you did behind the scenes to make this such an effective program. One of the first things we did, we did launch uh, a new method to do uh, spear phishing training. And that was a big one. And we, we did outreach to our components uh, on a monthly basis and sometimes more frequently. But um, we partnered with the vendor that we were using for that. And we started actually tailoring the types of campaigns and the way we do that. We actually took data from what we were seeing instead of just using the commodity ones where, you know, a lot of organizations will look at and, you know, here's the UPS one or the what, you know, we're going to deliver a package for you type of campaigns that are very commodity and everybody's doing them in every company. And we started looking at what are the spear phishing attacks that are actually happening to us? So what are, what are our users seeing every day? And we modeled our, our assessments uh, after those attacks. 
We also looked at things like what are going, what's going on in our organization. Um, our, our users got really good at spotting the spear phishing tests, right? So we we thought we got we got to up our game. We got to train our users not to spot the training, but to spot real stuff. And so we started trying to think about how will attackers actually make this look. Um, and 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 that's why we actually started using integrating what what our Justice Security Operations Center was seeing every day. And that was the input for how we did our assessments. Um, and then talking to our users about it, like, hey, this is what happened. This is how it happened. Um, having those kinds of communications, um, building videos, and, and, and really just having a lot more candid conversations with our, with our staffs on what this stuff's going to look like in the real life. So helping them become truly a human firewall for you, because they, you have they, to, they, right? Yeah. I mean, look at whether it be the Solar Ones attack or any of these major breaches. Like they, it's it's not rocket science. You know, there it's bad passwords. It's social engineering people, um, and once in a while, it's a supply chain attack. But even those could have rooted from from that. We don't even. I don't even know if we truly understand how Solar Ones was breached, but. Um, it, it often comes down to uh, how people are being targeted. And, and, and I imagine in an organization like Department of Justice, you, you sort of want to think that everybody has security top of mind, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean they have cybersecurity skills, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're 165,000 people and <laughs> they have lots of different kinds of jobs. And I would say most of them probably have, don't know what a, a spearfish is, or, right? Or if they get a phone, a strange phone call. Hopefully, the world is getting smarter on that stuff. But <laughs> they work, or people wouldn't do them. <laughs> right? There's always that percentage, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, so true. Well, Nick, listen, it's been great having you on, breaking down the executive order, and more importantly, talking about different approaches you're considering for that. Um, the human element does always come into a kind of key concern and probably will for many, many moons, right? Yeah. We just kind of have to do the best we can to, to make organizations more resilient as we were discussing. So it's been a pleasure having you on today and looking forward to having you in the future again. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Stan. I really enjoyed the talk with you guys today. Likewise. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business, where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve.